Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. This week's podcast is a little bit off the beaten track. I want to talk about truth. How do we know what we know is true? Or a little more accurately, how do we know what we believe to be true is actually true when it comes to economics? Can economics make any claim to being a science? To get at these questions, I'll talk about how my views on these questions have changed. And incidentally, most of that change has come, I from being the host of this show and talking to a lot of interesting people. And to help me think about these issues, I have Robin Hansen with us today, my colleague here at George Mason, whose blog, Overcoming Bias, deals with many of these issues. Robin, welcome back to Econ Talk. Delighted to be here. To get us started, I want to give a fairly long opening monologue. Uh, it's a confession of sorts. I'm putting myself on the couch of economic psychoanalysis with Dr. Hansen, my bias therapist. So here we go. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I did a podcast with David Henderson. David Henderson is a blogger at EconLog, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty, and he is the editor of the Concise Encyclopedia of Economics. And we got into a conversation about why economists disagree. And it's very common to hear people make fun of economists for not agreeing on stuff. And we economists, I think, are kind of sensitive to this uh, attack. And we often respond, as, as David did, at least as I remember it, by saying something like, well, actually, the agreement's bigger than you think. Uh, in the area of microeconomics, there's lots of agreement. Uh, we agree on lots of things, both in the methodological sense about how incentives matter, and then we agree on lots of policy issues like the minimum wage or tariffs. Most economists are against tariffs. They're against uh, the minimum wage. At least that's the standard view. Certainly they uh, are often against it. And his argument was, I think at some point I asked him, well, then what about the areas where we disagree, uh, where we look at the world differently, those of us who are more free market versus those who are more interventionist in terms of policies? And he said, well, you know, our data, our studies are, are better. Uh, at least that's, again, I, I, I want to be fair to David. That's, that's my memory. And if he didn't actually say that um, – I think that's a common view that people use to justify their own policy views. They say, well, you know, I don't disagree with you, but I have the evidence to, to make the case that, that you're wrong. Uh, and my study shows that my view is right. The minimum wage destroys jobs or the tariffs are bad for the economy, et cetera, et cetera. Two other podcasts had uh, – that got me thinking, really, is it really true that, that my data are better than his data or his data the, the guy I disagree with? And two other podcasts really jarred me, uh, and, and one of them I've talked about, but one I haven't, uh, in terms of how they affected my thinking. Uh, I interviewed Robert Frank. Robert Frank's the author of The Economic Naturalist, which is a very nice book looking at economics in everyday life and using economics to explore these phenomena. And as I read the book, I realized there are many of the explanations in the book that I found compelling, and there are many that I thought were silly. Uh, or disagreed with, or not quite right, or left out an important issue, or didn't, for example, assume that competition could solve this problem or that problem. And 
just to make a stark, somewhat overdramatic difference between Bob Frank and views, Bob Frank's views and mine, I'm more likely to argue that competition will lead to a certain result uh, that's, say, consumer-friendly and less likely to argue that price discrimination is an explanation of some pricing phenomenon than Bob Frank, who is more uh, – willing to accept an argument that competition doesn't always work the way that, that I might think it does. And I started to think, well, how, why am I right and he's wrong? Uh, you know, I was trained at the University of Chicago. We tend to argue when I was taught there that, that competition is very vigorous. Potential competition is important even in affecting pricing and consumer outcomes. But people trained at other schools are taught that there's lots of imperfect competition. There's monopoly or monopolistic competition or game theoretic issues that come up and allow consumers to be exploited. Now, those of us who take the opposite view, what's our evidence? Or the flip side, what's their evidence for their view other than that it's mathematically appealing or interesting to think about or a fuller case? Then I interviewed Ian Ayers. And Ian Ayers, author of Super Crunchers, in Super Crunchers, he argues we don't use enough statistical analysis to make the world a better place. We ought to use more of it. It's increasingly being used in business and in other places, but we ought to use it even more, especially in the area of policy, to, to design good policies. And I confronted him with, I thought, with a very uh, interesting question, which uh, he had a very interesting response to. The question was, uh, again, simply, how, how do you know your view is right? Uh, in, in the example I used uh, I talked about the work of John Lott, where John shows, using sophisticated econometric techniques, that concealed handguns reduce crime. So the possibility that a, cr a criminal will confront a citizen who he cannot know for sure has a gun or not, uh, that that is a deterrent to crime. And just the possibility that a citizen has a handgun, which is what the concealed handgun allows, the criminal to conclude, that that is going to reduce the crime rate. And I find John's work uh, very compelling on that. I think that's absolutely right. Then on the flip side, Ian Ayers does not find John's work compelling. By the way, he's a critic of it. But Ian has a paper uh, which shows that LoJack, which is a device to prevent your car from being uh, – to help you find your car if it's stolen. It's a radio – hidden radio transmitter in your car – Ayers argues that LoJack's a fantastic deterrent to car theft, and he has empirical evidence to show that's true. Now, John Lott doesn't respect Ayers' study, and Ayers does not respect John Lott's study, and it could be one of them's right and one of them's wrong, but I found it fascinating, and there could be things wrong with each of their studies, of course, that are decisive. But it made me think about, as I don't want to talk about whether which study's right and which one's wrong, or whether they're both right or both wrong, but it forced me to think about something I hadn't thought about in a long time, which is, well, why do we accept some empirical work and not others? And as opposed to, well, my side, of course, has good empirical work because my view is right and the other guy has bad empirical work. And Ian Ayers asked a, a very interesting question in, in that conversation. And if, if you go back to that podcast, you'll, you can go hear that. And I have a postscript to it where I tried to put my thoughts together on the topic. Ian says, well, I often ask my colleagues – have you give me an example of an empirical study that um, forced you to change your view on a particular topic, or that that you accept as a good study, even though it it uh, disagrees with your biases? And I realized I couldn't think of a lot of them. And more than that, and I think I talked about this in that postscript. I asked, and I think I asked Ian about it. 
can you think of a sophisticated empirical study? By sophisticated, I mean uh, the jargon would be, say, uh, two-stage least squares, instrumental variables, uh, complex statistical techniques, as opposed to facts. I'm not going to argue today that facts don't matter. I think facts do matter. Facts, of course, are elusive. Uh, fact, there's a lot of factoids out there. But I, I'm not arguing that data have no impact on an argument or shouldn't, but that sophisticated empirical work, sophisticated statistical and econometric analysis is fundamentally, uh, I'm starting to think at least, is fundamentally uh, not scientific but scientist, uh, a form of what Hayek called scientism that gives the gloss of science, that it's closer to what Ed Lemer calls faith-based econometrics. And uh, you might want to listen to the Lemer podcast as well, which where, where this issue comes up. Uh, so I asked Ian if there was – if he could think of a study that changed a consensus and reversed it. So that, that there was a consensus in the, in, the, in the field of economics and along came a study. And once everyone read the study, they had, to, they had to throw up their hands and say, oh, you know, I'm wrong. This this is the truth. I, all my priors are just you know I I I, I got to confess I got to change my mind, and I can only think of one uh, really important one, and it's uh, the exception that proves the rule. Uh, the example Ian Ayers gave was uh, the work on uh, abortion legalization reducing crime. An ironic choice in my opinion because I think that study's been uh, roundly rejected by. Lots and lots of people. Again, perhaps incorrectly, but I don't think that brought about a consensus as to what caused uh, crime rates to fall. Uh, the example I gave is doubly ironic. Uh, it's uh, Friedman and Schwartz's Monetary History of the United States. That study, to me, was the decisive piece of scholarship. Friedman suggests in, in my podcast with him that it was actually practice that changed people's minds, but. As a piece of scholarship, that piece of scholarship was the thing that people were forced to confront who argued that there was some explanation for inflation other than monetary policy. So here's the irony. One is it's not sophisticated. It's just called analysis. It just goes back and looks at – they look, they look at, the, at the facts. Uh, you know, what was the growth rate of money supply? What was the measured inflation levels? There's not a lot of – if any, I, don't, I can't remember, but I don't think there is any sophisticated regression analysis or other uh, forms of statistical technique. Um, the second irony is that it's in macro, the area where most economists would say, oh, we don't really have any consensus. It's just a bunch of uh, different theories competing. You know, we've made some progress perhaps, but, you know, macro, there's still lots of disagreement. Micro, that's where the agreement is. So I, again, going to micro, I think it's very difficult to find examples where microeconomic uh, econometric studies change people's minds. To take one more example, uh, and where I'll confront my own bias, I believe that the minimum wage is a bad policy. I believe it hurts the people it's trying to help. And often I would cite, as others have, the dozens and dozens and dozens of studies that show that indeed the minimum wage hurts poor people, hurts teenagers, hurts minorities, and uh, is a bad economic policy. In recent years, there's been a study uh, by David Card that and others that show that the minimum wage is actually increases employment. And people who like the minimum wage latched onto that one study and said, oh, see, we're, you know, minimum wage is actually okay. Uh, now, 
I always thought, well, but yeah, but that's one study, and I've got 40 or 80 or 120. There, there's just – there's been going back for decades studies that show the minimum wage is a bad thing. So that's not really a very good argument, the fact that I have more of them. Now, I could point out, as I, it's easy to do, that there are lots of flaws in the card study. It's Card and Kruger, I think. Um, there's a lot of flaws in that study, and they've done a couple, actually, and they wrote a book on it. But maybe my f- flaws that I see are flaws. Maybe they're not flaws. Maybe they're actually just unimportant, they're, that, that their study is actually the right one. And then I started to think, well, you know, maybe actually that all of them are kind of flawed in that you know, we're trying to tease out the effect of one social policy in the midst of dozens and dozens, hundreds and thousands of other changes – so, you know, for example, whenever I blog on this at, at Cafe Hayek, some skeptical about the minimum wage in general, a skeptical reader will point out that actually that unemployment is low in states that have high minimum wages. So obviously my theory is wrong. And I, of course, make a note that, well, there's a, there's a simultaneity problem. Maybe the states with low unemployment are the ones that pass the higher minimum wages because they can afford it. But even more importantly, you've got other things going on in those states. You wouldn't want to just attribute all of the differences in unemployment rates to one factor. So when you start to think about how you're going to study this, empirically, you have a social policy that applies to about 3% of the population. You're going to be using the overall unemployment rate, which is affected you know, as 100% of the population involved, not quite, but close, a large proportion, much greater than 3%. Why would you ever be confident? or arrogant enough to think that you could tease out the impact of that one thing. Because when you run the regression, when you try to, which is a statistical technique for holding, quote, quote, holding other things constant, so that you don't falsely attribute one of the effects to the minimum wage, it's actually caused by something else, surely you can't control for everything. So what the the analysis usually argues is, well, we've controlled for enough. We've controlled for the important things. So I started to think, you know, again, is my belief against the minimum wage really based on the evidence, or is it just the logic of the case? And I was forced to confront this in a different setting. Uh, and just for those of you listening at home and, and, and Robin, I'll let you know I'm about halfway through the, the rant or the confession or the monologue or the session on the couch. I, I'm sitting up, but I'm on the virtual couch here with Robin. Um, I went to uh, the University of, of Vermont, and I debated Bill McKibben on buying local, and I didn't do a very good job. Um, in the debate part, I was unprepared for the arguments that he made, which were mainly empirical. Uh, I thought the logical arguments I made were pretty decisive uh, and compelling, using economics to explain why buying local is a bad idea economically. It might be good financially. It might be good for other reasons, but it's not going to make your community rich to, quote, keep all the money in the community. Uh, but in response to that, one of the things that, that McKibben did is he quoted, quote, all these studies, and he, he had a few specific examples that purport to show that buying local is a good idea. Now, I, those studies are typically not peer-reviewed. They're not published in academic journals, but they are often sophisticated empirical studies. They're often done by consultants. They're often done by localities trying to make a case for buying local. And I found that my argument against his argument of invoking those studies was not very effective. Uh, I think it's right, but it's not effective. So my argument is, are you kidding? 
Those studies are horrible. I think they are. Give, give me a half an hour. I could show you why they're horrible. And I gave some examples of why they're flawed, what they miss out, the hidden things they ignore, et cetera, et cetera. But it was fascinating to me that unless I had my own lousy study, uh, badly done, pr- purporting to prove that buying local is actually a bad thing, which I'm sure I could cook up or find one, uh, I was disarmed that I couldn't argue, well, I can't, what I should have said perhaps was, well, I can't argue with your studies. You, how about you argue with my logic? Uh, it's just interesting that the logic argument is often, I think, uh, inferior in the eye of the listener, ear of the listener, to the, oh, I've got a study. I've got a big appendix with all these data analyses and, and, and calculations that I've made. You know, a similar issue will come up in whether Walmart lowers wages when it comes to a, a town. Now, I don't think there's uh, – I think there's a strong logical argument that says that Walmart doesn't lower wages. I understand why measured wages might go down. Maybe Walmart's pulling people into the labor force with lower skills. I can again cook up all kinds of arguments as to why the studies that have been done that show that Walmart lowers wages are actually incorrect. And logically, I can argue they're incorrect because I would argue, you know, Walmart increases the demand for labor. When I confronted one of the authors of this study with the uh, point that, well, gee, wouldn't you expect when Walmart comes to town, it would increase the demand for labor and drive up wages? And he had found in his study, I'll put a link up to it, I forget the author in the the paper, but he had found in his study that um, Walmart lowered wages, but not in small towns. In large metropolitan areas, and I said, and you know, putting the logic to the side, isn't that even harder to explain empirically? If you thought Walmart would have an effect, shouldn't it lower wages in small towns rather than in large towns? Large towns a lot more competition. And he looked at me and he dismissed me. He said very uh, confidently, he "says Well, well, yeah, you have a neoclassical view of the world. In your view, of course, that that would be true, but." Meaning, neoclassical meaning supply and demand, that in larger cities, demand would, Walmart's share of demand would be relatively small. Its share effect on wages and employment would be relatively unimportant. But in his view, which unfortunately we didn't get to because we had to go over uh, we to a conference and session started, but I think in his view he would have argued, or people in, in that setting argue, well, I'll just look at the data. You know, I don't, I don't need a theory. You have, you, know, you have a neoclassical theory. That's just one theory. It could be wrong. Uh, supply and demand thing and markets uh, and the wages emerge from competition among suppliers and, and demanders. I mean, suppliers and employer employees, workers. But, you know, I've looked at the data, and the data show that Walmart lowers wages more in large cities uh, than in small cities. So, you know, I'm on better, firmer ground. And my first reaction to that is, are you kidding me? Do you really think you've been able to hold constant the other things you need to hold constant in evaluating Walmart's wages? It just seems like an absurd claim to me, but that's not compelling as a counterargument, right? It's a difficult argument to sustain. Uh, so l- let me now turn to what I think is an application of some of these principles, which is the current financial mess and the um, implications for the economy and uh, what we ought to be doing policy-wise. So to get into that, I want to use – there was a little symposium at Cato on the website of Cato, at Cato Unbound, where they asked different people to argue about how we got into this financial mess. 
one of the people who wrote was Larry, Larry White. And he used an argument, uh, somewhat similar to an argument I've used in trying to explain how we got into this mess, which is you don't want to use greed because greed is always there. That can't be the explanation. The explanation has to do with the government's guarantee of Fannie and Freddie, pr- uh, pushing up the demand for housing, bad tax policy, pushing up the demand for housing, Alan Greenspan lowering short-term interest rates, pushing up the demand for adjustable rate mortgages, the Community Reinvestment Act perhaps, although I'm as – Although I've mentioned that, I'm not so convinced it's important because I'm not sure the magnitude is there, but that it may have played a role certainly increasing the demand for housing, all of which helped create the housing bubble, which helped create the possibility of these securitization uh, problems. Now, Brad DeLong uh, critiqued Larry White's argument, and here he rejects his argument on two uh, two, two grounds. He has his own set of explanations, a very interesting piece. But one of his critiques of Larry's explanation is that, well, the timing's all wrong. Uh, just like greed's always been around, Fannie and Freddie have always been around, the Community Reinvestment Act's always been around, and therefore those can't be the causes of the crisis. And, of course, to me that's a little bit absurd because it ignores the fact that actually Fannie and Freddie's mis- mission did change a lot around 1995, which is there was a, started to be a big push for them to get into affordable housing, meaning to start lending money to poorer and poorer people. It's explicit. Uh, you can debate whether they were leaders or followers, whether they just used this as a way to make Congress happy or whether Congress actually dragged them around. It's an interesting question. But you don't really want to argue that just because they've existed since 1968 or 1938, they can't be the source of the problem. Or the Community Reinvestment Act, which started in 1977. So you can, it looks like you can say, well, how could that be the problem? It started in 1977. Well, that's true. But in 1995, it was given teeth for the first time in a real sense by the Clinton administration giving uh, uh, banks a huge incentive to start making larger loans to uh, people that normally they wouldn't get loans, give loans to. Now, I still think – I don't know if CRA is important. It, it's a question of magnitude, and Brad points that out. He argues the magnitudes aren't there. I'm not sure, but that's, that's the relevant question. But I'm more interested in what Brad DeLong says at the end of his critique of White. He says – Fascinating thing. He says, so why does Larry White's diagnosis of what is going on differ so much from mine? I think that what is going on is a characteristic weakness of the Austrian tradition, the baseline assumption that all evils must have their origin in some form of government misregulation. If government could be drowned in the bathtub, then an Eden in which people indulged in their natural propensity to truck barter in exchange would emerge. And this automatically rules out what I regard as the most likely and fruitful road to walk down to understand this financial crisis, the road that starts from investigating how human psychological limits lead to bad private sector contract design that then magnifies psychological biases. I'm not – and DeLong continues. I'm not happy with the state of such explanations. They seem to involve at the moment a great deal of hand-waving. But in my judgment, it is less hand-waving than required to make the case that our current financial crisis is the result of our abandonment of a proper gold standard and our embrace of fractional reserve banking and government-sponsored mortgage lending enterprises. Close quote. So – Brad DeLong says White's explanation, poor, poor Larry White, he's an Austrian, he's a free market guy, he's a knee-jerk ideologue, and he's hampered in understanding what happened because of those biases. Of course, one could make the same critique of Brad DeLong. And I'll, rather than use Brad, I'll, I'll use um, 
Joseph Stiglitz, who has an, argue, an article in Vanity Fair, where in two sentences he dismisses the Community Reinvestment Act, Fannie Freddie argument. In fact, he blames it on deregulation, strangely enough, uh, the Glass-Steagall Act, the Bush tax cuts, which is quite creative, and a failure by Greenspan to regulate. So, you know, again, I could rephrase. I'm not going to do it. I could rephrase uh, Brad DeLong's critique of white and apply it to Stiglitz by just reversing the words that if we could just get the right government regulation, an Eden would emerge where blah, 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 and that poor Joseph Stiglitz is handicapped by his knee-jerk interventionist um, attitudes. The question is, so what's, is there any way to get to, the, to some truth about what got us into this financial mess? And I'll close. I think there is. Again, I think facts will matter in the story, but another part of me says, you know, both sides, the pro-government and the pro-market side, are, both of us are trying to create an ex-post narrative to explain a single event. It's really not the best place to do science. And the Great Depression has the same – and the New Deal, which are also part of this debate of how we're going to get out of the current situation, strikes me as a similar story. And those of you who are regular listeners know that, that I've been doing uh, a series of – podcasts on the New Deal, and I hope to do a few more because I think people are desperately interested, as I am, to understand what we might learn from that period that applies to today. And the answer might be nothing, although I think it's fascinating either way, but certainly it's strange to think about trying to explain a one-time event. It's not really the best place to do science. Uh, It's not the best place to generalize about what's going to happen now if we follow similar policies. But for example, the example that, that of course is in the news a lot is we just need a really big stimulus package. You know, Paul Krugman just won the Nobel Prize and he has argued, make it about a trillion, maybe more. Just, you know, make it big. And I asked the question, what's the empirical evidence we have for or against that policy being a good idea at this time? And I would suggest it's very thin. I'm sure there's arguments against it. Uh, empirically, there are arguments for it empirically, but most of my opposition to that is is not empirical but logical. The argument that resources are going to come from somewhere, that the government spending that money is going to have to take it away from probably lenders, uh, people who are going to buy government bonds, and so it'll be deficit financed, and that therefore there'll be less spending on something else. And I can't imagine that this is going to have a big cr- increase in uh, demand, which is the the Keynesian argument, the stimulus argument. So when I think on this crucial policy issue, when I think about what caused the financial crisis, um, I wonder how much evidence there is for my view or for the other side's view. Are we just kind of talking at each other and um, pretending to be somewhat scientific? I think in the current situation, what is needed to get the economy going again is trust, a sense of optimism. I don't think economics has much to say about how to create trust or optimism. And I also start to believe, part of my bias, of course, that the whole system is simply too complex to think of managing at all. And the more I think of it, the more I'm convinced that perhaps the main advantage of economics is to understand what not to do. But in a general sense, I'm coming to believe that What economics is most useful for, besides preventing really dumb decisions and bad policies, is providing a language and a framework for thinking about complex matters in a more organized and and potentially rigorous way and to help us organize our thinking in trying to 
deal with these issues. But as a science, it's um, kind of coming up short for me these days. So that's where I stand. Uh, I've talked for a long time. I hope you're still with us, and uh, I want to hear what Robin has to say. I want to have a conversation. Well, I might talk back. Yeah. All right. <laughs> as therapist, you, you're, your, main, your main role, of course, to say, right. is to repeat what that? I say. And, and How say, do you feel about that? <laughs> or, so you're skeptical <laughs> about economics, and let me right. ramble Just some more. Put your words back at you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, in the end, you don't really have a question here. It sounds like you're, uh, you already know the answer to the question you've asked. You're just not very happy with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is? Well, you, you've said, uh, here's all these detailed studies, and I look at this, and I have this opinion, and there's other people who look at it and have the other opinion, uh, contrary opinions, and there's a correlation here. It's not just random people who have random opinions. There's my side and their side, and my side tends to think one way, and their side tends to think the other way. And um, when you debate them or argue with them, um, people like to appeal to data, but data is not very reliable. It's too easy to make up data that fits whatever you want. Uh, that's true of all sides. Uh, theory is more powerful often than data when you understand it, but uh, theory doesn't persuade wider audiences very well. And unfortunately, people on the other side can often find a different theory reason. Oh, absolutely. To, um, plenty of theories. Up. To explain their other point of view. Uh, this suggests that the entire output of this process is not a very reliable guide to uh, to advice, right? It suggests that uh, pe- what's coming out is mainly determined by what went in. People have yeah. initial pre- pre- predispositions, and that's what's coming out. That's the story you're telling me here. It's right? the story I'm telling you, and, it, and it's worse than that because it's confirming a view that, that I used to find totally repugnant, which is the public's view of economists, which is, oh, yeah, they're, you know, you know they don't have any – you lay them in, Dan, they don't reach a conclusion. Right, right. So let's back off for a minute and, and ask, what, you know, for example, you and I probably just finished grading final exams. I'm about two-thirds of the way. <clears throat> and, and now we're, we're taping we're, this on December 17th, 2008. So I want to let our listeners know that we're not, I'm not <laughs> still grading in 2009. Go ahead, right, go ahead, right. Rob. We're, we're not that late. Yeah. <laughs> we, we might have been, but. Uh, yeah. Well, so when you read, final exam essay questions or answers, uh, you get the impression there that experts like us know a lot more than amateurs. Yeah. Because their answers are often just so confused. Right. Right. Okay. So can we at least ask the very basic question is, do we as economists know things that non-economists don't? Do, are there, like Henderson's point, can we at least identify some things that we agree on where it looks like we understand something, and non-experts, people outside the profession. Because if we if we don't even have that, all these no, detailed arguments about. I think know. we have that. I think we are. Um, I don't want to. By the way, I don't want to be too critical of my students. I think they they <laughs> they did a, a, so far a very good job understanding what I expected them to understand. But I think the the right test would be before they took the class versus after they took the class. Um, I, I overheard a conversation this morning where someone was saying, this is a common theme I hear these days, that, well, you know, the whole economy is just a house of cards. The whole thing is just built on debt. And the way to get to a healthier world is a world of no debt. Now, this is a, a very strange uh, overreaction to the current situation. Debt's a wonderful thing. Right. 
the, the problem is is imprudent debt, <laughs> uh, either lent imprudently or borrowed imprudently. Prudently guaranteed. Yeah, pr- worse. Yeah, prudently guaranteed. So it's risk-free, risk-free debt. You know, it's ironic. We have all these, you know, we like to make fun of these late-night infomercials, right? right. You, know, you can make a million dollars risk-free. Uh, you know, the government and some private sector players were pretty confident that that was possible. That's one thing we understand as economists. Right. It's not possible. No such thing as risk-free. Okay, so if we understand some things, okay. then there's two. Which ba- I agree. Okay, then there's two basic hypotheses for what's going on in all these disputes you have. One is the things we understand aren't very useful. <laughs> right. They're just true about some abstract realm of that nobody really cares or needs to know about. When you get to real interesting problems, we don't know much of anything, but we know something about something else, so that's what we talk about in class because that's what that's we, we have. Yeah. What we have, <laughs> but it's not really very useful. It doesn't really apply to very much. It's just. You know, cute. Right. You know, but it, it's like astronomy or something, right? It's nice, pretty pictures, but what are you going to do with it? Yeah. Number theory. <laughs> right. Right. It's an interesting okay. intellectual exercise. Of course, that actually can have real um, arcane mathematics can have real applications, right, much right. more likely than, than some of the stuff we do. But okay, yeah, but, okay. but for the most part, maybe sometimes it has an application, right? Uh, another theory would be. Um, Economics has a lot of application. It, it is applied a lot, but we just like to talk about the cases where we disagree. So we're focusing attention on the cases where we disagree, and that's where all our energy, and that's where you're noticing all the stuff. Uh, when, in fact, we don't know that much about a problem, but still we'd like to know something, then we argue about it. And, you know, so that's, that's the case. That's an argument. That just says we're not giving credit for all the things we do do that we don't Glass argue about. Glass is half full. It looks half empty, right. but it's really eight. Seven-eighths full. Right. You know, be thankful that we know some things and that we're listened to. I mean, compared to most academics, economists get listened to quite a bit. Right. We're in the paper. We're in government, you know. And and arguably, that's because we know a few things. And uh, maybe, in fact, when we don't know things, uh, it's good that we argue because that lets other people know, hey, (laughs) this is the border of what they know. We should stop listening now because they seem to be arguing. So in the areas where we argue, though, you don't think there's any uh, possibility? Okay, well, that's, that's the second theory. Okay. Okay. The second theory is just when we don't know, we argue, and that's just a sign that we don't know, and people should just ignore any subjects on which we argue, and they should just listen to us on the things we don't argue about, and the other stuff, they just say, oh, sorry, they don't know, so they're just useless. Okay. A third theory, though, okay. a third theory is we know a lot about a lot of things, but the process by which... Um, these opinions come to public attention is biased by the incentives of that process. So, um, for example, you could imagine that uh, in some sort of antitrust uh, trial, um, both sides could manage to hire lawyers to give compelling, logical, theoretically coherent, statistically backed cases, even when, in fact, almost every economist would agree side A is right and side B is wrong. So that says the incentives of that process, the process that picked those people and put them up there and decided to pay them to say whatever it took. You said lawyers, but, but it would also include economists right, who right, would so testify. What, I was thinking of expert testimony yeah. by economists, right? So, in fact, in antitrust trials, one of the main things they do is they hire economists for expert testimony, and there are law firms out there that specialize in hiring economists for that purpose. So that argument— That's a deep insight, actually. So that argument there says it's the translation you know, from things we know to when it matters— uh, that's the problem, which is that you know the system for finding out what we know isn't robust to 
distorting incentives. So if it's a, if it's a topic nobody cares about, then you can ask a random economist and you'll get the same answer. And then and it's, we'll, an the, it's a consistent answer. But suddenly when there's something at stake, when there are interests involved who could push it one way or the other, then they can buy, you know, directly buy in some cases opinion. Or in other cases, they can donate money to universities and to foundations to promote their side and push their cause so that there's so much or they're going Energy to get pushing. high, or just more simply that by staking out a particular position, you raise the chance that you'll get a, a job right. in a certain administration. Sure, right. Absolutely. Or so a, yeah. Right. So the more interest at stake, and the more they realize that, and the more they've you know attended to economists and rewarding economists and hiring them and paying for conferences and journals and everything else, then the more we should expect that whatever people would have thought had they just looked at the theory straight head on and the data head on, being honest and straightforward about it, isn't what you find out in the end through these. Forums, these debates that you're involved in, newspaper articles, uh, Fed policy, things like that. So I like that theory. <laughs> it, it explains something I find fascinating, which is um, the intensity and animosity that you sometimes see, personal animosity you see in these conversations and these debates publicly, but in a different setting, there's much more nuance and much more acceptance that, yeah, well, maybe you're right. So so an analogy is uh, people really respect physicists, say, except when physicists start talking about something public cares about. Like global warming. Or nuclear winter or, you know, know, uh, nuclear weapons or whenever physicists start talking about something the public cares about, suddenly physicists don't get anywhere near the respect they used to get. You know, if they just talk about how many dimensions string theory has or something, they can get full page, you know, articles in the front of the science section or something as soon as they start wandering onto something that uh, global warming, say. Then people go, you know, and rightfully so, <laughs> which is what's interesting, right? Uh, I mean, global warming. Well, even a, if, even when they have scientific expertise that's relevant to a question, that's like, yeah, which, right? Which, yeah. The, the, the public becomes skeptical, and in part, perhaps rightly skeptical, if in fact they're right that in, you know, that political processes are biasing the opinions that the public sees on those things. Yeah, no, that's. Um, I mean, the global warming example is a nice example. Of this outside of economics, where there is enormous empirical evidence that global warming is caused by humans and could lead to a huge crisis. And a lot of people, both scientists and non-scientists, are skeptical of that those studies, partly because of the complexity, the, the intellectual issue we're talking about, but also partly because they know there's money at stake and power at stake and that maybe the scientists are exaggerating right. their confidence in it. So, so this says it's not so much about whether economics is a science per se. It's just about whether the topics are interesting mm-hmm. and matter. Mm-hmm. In, in some more basic sense, well, you know, as soon as, as soon as we academics start talking about something that matters to people outside academia, then our their level of deference to us goes way down, uh, unless we're saying what they want to hear. So carry on. Well, so th- this third theory uh, says that maybe we could do better if we could do better with that process. Uh, so that's. You know, we can go in the direction of talking about different ways we could do better, and prediction markets are one of those ways. But, but you should also pause for a moment and realize <laughs> Robert brings up yeah, his well, own sure, his own bias. The <laughs> prediction I, markets are thinking. phenomenal, <laughs> right? It's but not but a the bias, other thing sorry, to notice is that you know, if you are part of this process, if you are one of these people who are you know, get money from various foundations that have you know points of view who uh, hang out with other people with a point of view who get rewarded socially for pushing our side then your perception that your uh, conclusions are well justified by your data 
uh, are called into question in the way you've been calling them into question because you suspect that people on the other side similarly feel sincerely that their conclusions are well justified. And when you look at them, you wonder, how could they see that when I see this, right? Right. And you have to ask yourself, well, what could be happening to them such that they would see this as so obvious, uh, even though they know people like me disagree with them? And you're probably going to attribute them to having fallen under the influence of wishful thinking, of allowing themselves to believe what they wanted to believe. And, you know, and if you think that's very common, if you think people all over academia in these fields are falling suspect, being susceptible, allowing themselves to be tempted and um, to sin Mm -hmm. by believing what they wanted to believe, by believing what they thought initially would be true, then you have to ask yourself, why do I think I'm different? Is there some sign that I have that I'm not one of those sorts of people who would have been susceptible to this? I, If, in fact, the evidence had gone against my presuppositions, I would, in fact, have rejected them. I would have threatened my relationships with my sponsors and my friends and my colleagues and my previous body of writing to reject it all when I, because I would have, I would have said, aha, uh-huh, I guess I was wrong. Of course, that can be lucrative, too. The other side loves a, loves a, a convert, right. a, a turncoat. There's, a, code, there's yeah. a niche market for <laughs> yeah, that. It's, a niche, it's not yeah. a big market. No, it's a niche market, yeah. <laughs> and you have to be pretty high up for that. If, right. you're, if you're kind of low down, it doesn't, it doesn't get work. you very far. Yeah. And you can't do it more than once. <laughs> That's right. Um, That's probably some exceptions. So what's your thought on that? Well, I mean, I think you, you basically have to bite that bullet. You have to say, unless I have some evidence to think I'm more objective, I'm more honest, I'm more, you know, likely to have changed my mind if the evidence had changed my mind, more likely to have rejected these temptations, these uh, lucrative support, um, my intuitions are suspect too. I mean, I'm part of this process that rewards people for saying what their side wants and sincerely saying that and believing it, right? So, you know, we humans leak our insincerity. We what? We leak our insincerity. It's hard to be a good actor. Yeah. They're rare. Most of us can't lie very well or very convincingly. So the only way we really can say what's not true and get away with it is by believing what's not true. I mean, that's how we work. So we have to realize if we're in an environment that was rewarding us for believing a certain thing, uh, and we see this big pattern of other people out there being believing whatever they're rewarded for believing, and and especially rewarded for consistency and for finding whatever data backs their case, then you got to say, damn, I guess I'm probably not... As uh, since you know, as careful and honest as I would have liked, I'm human. So uh, let me just react to that with a couple of things. One is that you know, when we've had guests on this show who are non—I uh, don't know what you want to call them—non-free market or antagonistic to my worldview or the standard views that are typically here. Uh, one of the things that happens sometimes I challenge them and they say, "Yeah, you're probably right." Um, on some something they've said, a dramatic statement they've said in yeah. one of their writings. I thought we we're going to have a big argument about it. And then sometimes we'll just say, yeah, yeah, that was a little too strong. And I'm thinking, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You're not going to defend it? Uh, other times, I think people get upset. You out there, listeners, get upset when I don't give a uh, different point of view a harder time. I really should have really hammered this guy. And I've gotten less interested in hammering people. And I, I really – I view this show as a chance for you, the listener, and for me to learn about – 
all kinds of things. I'd like to have a lot more alternative views on here. I don't think I'm going to be persuaded by them necessarily, but I learn something when I talk to people who disagree with me. And I'm not particularly interested in having those people on so I can savage them or prove they're wrong. I think it's interesting for people to hear the arguments against those viewpoints. Um, but what I'm really interested in is this, what we're doing right now, which is a conversation, an intellectual exchange that I think that's ideally respectful, that people, that people learn from. Let me add a philosophical note uh, to your point, Robin, about uh, having to confront this possibility that one is in the same boat as one's uh, people were criticizing. Uh, I was very influenced in, in college by a philosophy professor, um, Richard Smythe, who taught me a course on pragmatism. Pragmatists don't have a lot of romance about their branch of philosophy. It's not like uh, the Aristotelians or the Hegelians or the Kantians. The pragmatists, they I mean, they don't have coffee houses for devoted to them. They don't, and and they're just uh, pragmatists. I mean, it's really a it's an interesting name. I don't know how the name came about, but the, what what I understand from from Professor Smythe about pragmatism, the chief insights and and the the, the greatest pragmatist was Charles Peirce. P-E-I-R-C-E. The way that Smythe summed it up, which and this will be your segue to Robin to your prediction market point, perhaps. The way Smythe summed up the pragmatist viewpoint is that your grandmother is right. You know, you may think it's okay to do X, Y, or Z, and your grandmother will say, No, 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 that's just wrong, whatever it is, whatever socially rebellious thing you're thinking of that your grandmother wouldn't like. She says, that's a bad idea. And you confront her and you say, But why? And she doesn't have an answer. She'll just say, ah, it's just wrong. It's, it's just the wrong thing to do. You, the one who wants to pursue the behavior, uh, you'll say to yourself, well, she doesn't have an answer. She doesn't have a reason. So my answer is, I have reasons for why I want to do it. So I'm using reason. She's using superstition, religion, culture, faith, some set of mores, norms. Those are outdated. My way's better. Um, this belief in reason is a uh, goes back to Descartes. Goes back further than that, but but Descartes was the was the uh, one of the pusher, biggest pushers of it. And and again, the way Smythe talked about it was, I'm going to examine all my beliefs, and if there's anything that's wrong, I'm going to throw it out, and I'm only going to keep the right ones. And the pragmatists argued that that was a fallacy. That was a misleading strategy. Why? Because it's very hard to to analyze your beliefs subjectively. And as a result, you're going to keep the ones that are convenient or profitable. Uh, the analogy also is to the, the planks of a boat. If you think you're going to pull up the floorboards of the boat and throw out the rotten ones, you're going to end up at the bottom of the ocean, not smooth and sailing. Um, the quote from Benjamin Franklin that, that uh, Dick Smythe would use in class was, when fortresses and virgins get to talking – the end is in sight, meaning that when you besiege someone to get something from them and they are against being besieged, once they start negotiating, getting to talking about maybe, you know, maybe there's a way we can work this out, they'll eventually come up for, with a reason ex post as to why it's the right thing to do to, to give in. And that reason, therefore, is um, not so reliable despite – the, I think the, the hubris and the confidence that rational folks have in 
often being better than those who are merely superstitious or biased or whatever the words are. Uh, what the pragmatists argued is that there's wisdom in the community that has, and this is a very Hayekian idea, that has survived the test of time and that many of the norms and mores and cultural beliefs that people have are not mere superstitions, but rather the result of a competitive process that has caused certain re- process, certain ideas to be rejected and others to be accepted. Of course, as a Hayekian, I'm very comfortable with that. Uh, that's, that plays to my bias. So why, why don't you respond to that? Well, I mean, certainly some truth to that. The question is how much. Uh, we're talking about several different divides here. So there's within economists, free market, say, versus less free market within economists. There might be economists versus sociologists or other people who uh, are experts on social policy in some way. And then there's academics versus non-academics and uh, people who have reasons versus people who just say, that's just the way it is. And for every one of these divisions, there's the question, how sure are you that you're right and they're wrong? Uh, but even among people who think, no, it's good to have reasons, uh, if nobody can come up with a reason, uh, that's that's a problem. Uh, especially, you know, if no expert, <laughs> given a lot of time and the chance to come up with a reason, can come up with one. That would be alarming, yeah. <laughs> uh, we're pretty that's good more at that, disturbing. Though. Yeah, we're pretty good at that. That, that you know, so then you might say, even if ordinary people are fun, would, would do, do well to just go on with their so, local social conventions, uh, still, if academics can't come up with reasons for these social conventions, uh, that's a lot more reason to question them. So nevertheless, academics should be focused on um, finding reasons for things and be disturbed by not finding reasons. Um, But any one person um, often has the reasons in their head, and uh, there's this issue of how much should you realize that there are reasons that aren't the reasons you're aware of. so, I mean, if you're not you aware just gave of it, an example on the incentive part, you, that you might be incentivized right. by personal gain that you don't think about enough. Right. I mean, well, so first of all, it, there's just the mere fact that the vast majority of your your mind and its thinking is something you, stuff you're not aware of. I mean, whenever you go into cognitive science or in the field of artificial intelligence, where I used to be, and you realize that if you try to make a computer do any of the things we're used to, you see all the detail that we're usually not aware of. There's just a lot of little things you have to do to make it work. That our mind is doing that we're usually just not even thinking of. Give me an example. Well, just constructing these sentences we're constructing and throwing at each other. You know, they meet all these detailed constraints. There's all this uh, amazing correlation between the sentences and how they're framed and what they refer to that uh, it's very hard to write a program to do. But we're just spitting the words out one right after another and it doesn't feel hard at all. But that's because we're not thinking about it, aware of how much work that takes. So most of our reasoning is unconscious to us. So that's one thing right there to realize. And secondly, other people have other reasoning that not only is it, un, you know, it might be conscious to them, but we're not even aware of it. It's not even in our unconscious reasoning, and we have to give that some credit. We have to realize, hey, they could have thought some stuff I didn't think of. So if I have a set of reasons in my head that sort of seem to lead from A to B, at first I have to realize I'm not aware of most of how I got from A to B. I'm just sort of outline. I mean, my mind throws up this outline of the process, but it's leaving out almost all the detail. And secondly, there are lots of other considerations that I wouldn't see here that somebody else might be seeing. I mean, this, this illusion that somehow you're seeing the entire picture is crazy. It's you're almost always wrong in saying, "Well, I see everything there is about the relationship between A and B. I'm done. There, there just couldn't be anything more." I mean, there's just lots, lots more. There's always lots of other ways to look at these things. So, uh that's, of course, one of the main reasons to pause in your confidence. You say, well, I have my reasons, and they look pretty good. Well, sure, they look pretty good. But 
you're not aware of all their flaws, even in your own mind. Even all the flaws your mind was aware of, you, you just passed over quickly. And then other people have can be aware of lots of things about this topic that you're not aware of. So you have to give that some credit and say, okay, how much, how likely is it that they know things I don't? And uh, how do all these clues I'm getting affect that? So, I mean, I, I do think that there are clues you could get that would indicate to you that even on an ideological topic, you might be more right than they are. But they're not as easy as clues as you might think of to come around with. And part of the problem is almost everybody can point to something like that. But I, but I think what do you we, mean? Well, so, for example, if you, in fact, gave up something of great otherwise value to you because it didn't make sense, right? If, if somebody asked you to endorse something that you said, that, you know, I know that's on my side, but it doesn't look right. Or uh, say they... So that's a red flag that maybe... <laughs> maybe you got some principles. <laughs> maybe you actually care something about the truth at some level. I mean, so there's various indicators about how much you really would be willing to be honest against the tide, right? And um, they're weak clues. And in the end, even if you add a bunch of them up, they don't add up to a lot. So you still have to not be that certain that you're right, but they can weigh on your side. Uh, so, you know, if, if um, you say you tried to publish a journal article and the editor wants some key conclusion changed and it was a great journal, but you say, mm, well, but that's not right. That's not the conclusion that follows that tells paper. you that you maybe are doing a good job in evaluating. Well, maybe you, you have some reluctance to just go along with whatever the incentives are. But of course, if other people have a similar level of this reluctance, that doesn't tell you you're more right than them. It just tells you you're not the extreme whore that you thought you might be, you feared right. you might be, right. right? And I didn't mean to disparage whores there. I just, <laughs> per se. Uh, but, uh, so then you, so if you can, you, there are various signs of these sorts that might tell you, you know, if you're willing to disagree with a influential colleague who, who can help you a lot because, you know, they're just, you're going well, too you far know. with uh, with your side or something. Those, those are weak signs, but other people have those weak signs too. Almost everybody needs to have some way to feel proud of themselves, and so everybody takes some effort to put their foot down sometimes and, and even go against their side just to show their independence. Let, let me come back to the to the financial mess as an example of this. I came at it initially as an ideologue. I knew anything about gov- I, I knew virtually nothing about government's involvement in housing other than that tax deductibility of mortgage interest. And using my bias, which is, well, if this mess happened, it must have something to do with government, right? That's my that's right. the Brad DeLong's critique of Larry White, which applies equally to me. Uh, I started looking into what the government's involvement is. I was shocked actually to find how substantial Fannie and Freddie's role was. As you can you might hear from the podcast we did with uh, Ar- I did with Arnold Kling. And I sort of made a list and Truth be told, some of the things on the list I think are potentially very important, and some are less so. The Community Reinvestment Act example, I think, which is, even though it did get strengthened in 1995, I don't think it was the source of the problem. And those who claim it is, I'm, I'm willing to argue with them and say, you know, you're, you're going too far. But I don't know if that really gives me a lot of personal credibility with myself over that. And I have to say, by the way, that I'm shocked at how little we know about the Community Reinvestment Act. So it could be that the magnitudes are actually a lot larger than, than, than we thought than I know, and, and maybe it did play a role, although, again, I'm sort of skeptical on that. You can also have on a situation like this, say, maybe 75% of each side is a reasonable person who, once they look at it, say, well, I guess I'd, I don't really know if my side's right here in this case. Could be wrong, I just don't know. And they, Those people shut up. <laughs> they don't show up on the talk shows. They don't show up on the panels. They aren't invited to do the uh, 
debates, and still you have a, these other effects, the selection effects of putting up people who have clear, stark positions to uh, take these sides. Uh, so we can give ourselves credit for being maybe more, most people have a moderate level of, of honesty. What's but, the implication for, for um, I don't want to detract too much from your last point. I mean, I don't think I fully understood it. You're saying that there might be some places where you'd learn that you were somewhat objective or somewhat willing to, to have principles about a particular search for the truth. So you're saying now that, again, that the public debate about a topic is very misleading about Maybe, the yes. level of, of confidence that we have. And the level of uh, confidence each side has because they select for the confident people on each side. Right. Unless, you know, unless you have some independent basis of authority or a Nobel Prize winner or whatever. Right. Um, they, there was a selection effect there. So the, the level of confident disagreement that you see presented in the media could be an exaggeration relative to the level of disagreement among ideologues. People. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I think that's a great point. But nevertheless, if the ideologues are still consistently on one side versus the other, on average, obviously, something's going wrong. Somebody's not listening enough. Or truth's pretty elusive, right? What about the argument that this is just, a lot of these things are simply unknowable? Right, well, but if you realize that, then you would just move to this middle common position of, I guess we don't know about this. And you'd find all these opinion, people in the middle with this, I guess we don't know opinion. So if well, you said, no, 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 but that's if there's no incentive. I mean, I think, I think even yeah. in the non-public parts of this debate, I, I, let me say it in a more um, peculiar way. I think most of us, and by most of us, I don't mean just economists. I mean thinking people, thoughtful people, curious people. It's hard to consistently say I don't know. It is. It's much more fun to, to say I do know. Um, and so I think there's a, there is a tendency to say... But the key point is the thinking people there. I mean, most people do say they don't know. I mean, random people, if you ask a random person, they honestly do. To, it's, it's the people who have their opinions and their intellect as part of their identity more than most people who are the people who feel like they need to have, have an to opinion. Say, yeah. But let's take a poll, say, of the American people on whether uh, a 500 plus billion dollar stimulus package is, quote, good for the economy. What do you think that poll would find among uh, among economists and among the general public? Well, people will state an opinion. They, they just won't be any nearly as strongly felt about it as most of us. So, so there's a temptation, anytime a pollster asks you for something, you sort of put yourself into the person who has an opinion mode and you make correct. something up. Good I mean, point. so we see enormous inconsistency. You can ask people the same question three months later and the correlation is really low. It looks like, honestly, people just make up random answers. So why don't the, you make your point for prediction markets now, which I, which I derailed you from before. I, I wasn't trying to push per se. I was saying um, the key problem here, stepping back, is that uh, individuals don't have sufficient incentives, to be honest. Uh, so maybe it's asking a lot of human beings to try hard to believe the truth in the face of uh, contrary incentives. Uh, maybe you want, what you as a listener want to do is f say, well, where are forums in which the incentives are good for those people to be telling me what's true? And um, I should listen to those more. But of course, unfortunately, there's a problem that means that I have to care about the truth as a listener. Correct. 
So if what I wanted to do was just pick an opinion that had good social support so that I could be with the dominant side or something. Right, then, the cool, or the hip people or right, whatever it is. Yeah. Then, you know, if, if the Harvard folks have an opinion, then I want the Harvard folks' opinion. And who cares whether it's true or not? I'm, right. I'm showing everybody I'm high class and I'm dominant because I've yeah. got the Harvard folks' opinion, right? So there's a basic fundamental problem, even with prediction markets, of who's the customer, uh, you can have a mechanism. So prediction markets, what they are, so prediction markets are a way to uh, put up a question like the financial bailout even and have a betting market on it so that people who uh, want to make a forecast about, say, the consequence of the betting mark of a stimulus of different sizes, uh, whether a you know, high-level stimulus would get us out quicker than a low st- stimulus, uh, those people have an incentive to think carefully about it and shut up if they don't know because if they bet wrong, they'll lose money, say, if we're betting money. Uh, that's a robust system for getting advice about this stuff. So what we usually do is we listen to the talking heads on TV, whoever writes in you know, Harvard Business Review or, or Foreign Policy or whatever high prestigious publications there are, and, and we listen to those things, and then, we're, and then we complain that there are incentives in those processes for people to not tell us the truth. But of course, part, part of it's our fault, and we're listening to those sources rather than a more reliable source. So a betting market would be a more reliable source. You can complain now that they aren't available, so you have to listen to the New York Times. But we make the betting markets illegal, so we should allow them more illegal. But honestly, even when they are legal, we don't listen to them that much. How about or how about a simpler system? How about not simpler? Sorry, a different version of your point would be that uh, congressional compensation sure. should be based on the unemployment rate twelve months from now. Or so, so give congressmen a f- direct financial stake in how the economy goes, or in the president. Yeah, that makes. That makes a lot of sense. Well, they have some direct, they have a pretty direct stake. The the president does. The the members of Congress' stake is pretty, I mean, the the president gets stuck with whatever happens, good or bad, sticks often to the president, regardless of whether there's any real reason for it to. But it depends on people's interpretation of what caused what, unfortunately. So, uh, you know, it depends on, you know, does Clinton reward it or not for what he did in 1995? To yeah. change, I don't know. Right. You know, so if, we, if now we find out that it caused a problem, uh, did yeah. that hurt or help him? Yeah. It hurt his historical reputation. I think the interesting point about what's going on now in the world is, you know, it's as we've talked about in a previous podcast, uh, President Hoover has this reputation of being a do-nothing free market ideologue. It's not the case, uh, but it's interesting that's his historical legacy. It, it may change in the next 50 years, but for the last – 75, that's been his historical legacy. He stood by and did nothing. In fact, that's not the case. He did a lot of stuff. Uh, and it's interesting that that's what his reputation he was stuck with. I think partly because the economy didn't do very well and people were eager to blame it on a free market ideologue. Similar things happening now. Bush is called the free market ideologue when, in fact, he's increased government spending by an enormous amount, done all kinds of non-free market stuff. But that's a nice argument for people who want to blame markets for everything that goes wrong. So this this whole process of the faulty incentives in the end comes down to the ultimate customer. You know, so yes, foundations might be funding academics on one side to say one thing, but why are they doing that? Because when academics on one side say more, it shows up more in the newspaper and shows up more in congressional hearings and eventually influences public opinion and influences policy. Uh, We'd like to think. 
That may be a but, total fantasy, but, by the way. Eventually, there's eventually, you know, in a, in a democracy, there's public opinion. That's this judge, and people are trying to influence public opinion. If public opinion were very per- discerning, <laughs> were very uh, careful, were, were asked for clear, careful studies, um, this stuff wouldn't be a problem. It, ultimately, the reason why I say sloppy statistical studies win is because the customer isn't very discerning. The people who are out there listening to your, your debate say, ooh, I guess that's a persuasive statistic, uh, they aren't paying much attention. So, uh, What should we do about that? Well, we sh- the betting market scenario is to say, uh, listen to a betting market price. Um, that's If you want a more reliable source, go there, because uh, that will d- uh, cut a lot of the stuff out. But my impulse is to, is to, and what's part of what I do here, is to encourage people to be skeptical about what appears to be valuable evidence when, in fact, I think it probably isn't. Right, but as we just said, um, encouraging people to be skeptical somehow goes against their private interests. So I can be a very well-informed voter by just saying I don't know to everything. In fact, I can be more well-informed in an objective sense than quite a lot of people who have opinions on things. But I don't impress my friends and relatives very much that way. Right. So what am I? What do I get out of the political process? You could ask as as an ordinary voter. I don't affect the outcome very much anyway. All main thing I can do is look like I'm informed, look like I'm with it, show my allegiance to various groups that I'm with. If uh, that's my incentive for forming my political opinions, uh, I won't be very careful in evaluating whether somebody's study about local uh, production is a good study or not. True. So where does that leave us? Uh, well, it leaves us with, first of all, with ourselves, with our own honesty. We have to ask, how important is honesty to us, even if nobody listens? How much are we willing to sacrifice to say we don't know when we don't know? To say, that yeah, that study went against my preconceptions, but looks right, I guess. My preconceptions might be wrong. Uh, so that's the first thing to say. And then the next is, if there are other people out there like that who actually care about honesty, um, where are they and how can we uh, get together and work together? And so they might at least look at, look at the betting market. Maybe other people won't look at the betting market. But uh, if they will, then I can uh, think carefully and maybe bet on it. And they will look at the betting market price and believe me. And at least we honest folk can together figure out what we believe. Yeah, I guess it's a question of which is the least quixotic strategy, encouraging betting markets, encouraging honesty, encouraging knowledge of statistics. Yeah, you know, my strategy, I'm sitting here thinking, again, just to, this thing is so self-referential. I'm sitting here thinking, gee, that's a pretty long shot. That's kind of a long shot, hoping that people are going (laughs) to move to prediction markets. Yeah, but mine is maybe even more foolish, that people become skeptical of empirical studies. Um, uh, But it's a, it's a weird thing because people are skeptical of empirical studies. They know that it's easy to lie with statistics. But are even uh, more skeptical of theory, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, well it's theory that matters. I think they should be skeptical of theory. I think that's a good idea. Economics is very simplistic. It, it, by definition, all theories are by definition simplistic. I mean, on the local production thing, you know, my usual answer would be, okay, one household should, yeah, it, should I try do that. all that. You know, reductio ad absurdum. Yeah. Okay. But, so you have to, so obviously, whatever, wherever the advantage of this local production is, it kicks in at a certain, certain scale, right? right? Yeah, of course. So where does it kick in? Would first be the question. Yeah. Oh, is the neighborhood a thousand people? Would that be enough, or do you need a whole town? Or well, I tried that argument at the University of Vermont. It didn't sell very well. There were a lot of people. <laughs> 
who were predisposed to the alternative view, and so they didn't find my logic very compelling. Um, I think the um, in the you know one view says this, this is so quixotic the idea of changing you know hearts and minds uh, toward a, a more discerning view is 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 inherently quixotic. It's not likely people are busy. They're, they're, they have a lot to do, and they hold the views they hold partly for emotional and social reasons, not because they think they're true or not because they are true. Right. Um, yeah. What should we teach our students? Not ours here at George Mason, but what, what do you think? Because we, we have our own um, market niche, but uh, in general, what do you think economists should teach students about these issues? Well, I do think it helps to just repeatedly teach anything which you can really show is confidently true and is contrary to everything they've ever heard and probably contrary to things they'll read in the newspapers. I mean, just showing them that, uh, you know, to convince them that these aren't reliable sources, you have to show them how very wrong they can be. Uh, So that's one thing you have to do on the one hand. And on the other hand, you have to show them all the people out there who take that lesson to heart too far and come up with all a huge range of views that disagree with each other. Um, I, you know, I, I think you have to show them both both sides of that. Both that often the consensus is just terribly wrong. It's just wishful thinking. It's just sloppy thinking. And then on the other hand, all the people out there, this vast sea of people who decide the consensus is wrong and therefore have an enormous range of crazy views. None of what you know, only one percent of which could possibly be true. Uh, and therefore, that you know, in the face of that huge divergence of random opinion, the average opinion isn't such a terrible thing. Well, I was thinking, though, more of a graduate student. You know, the, you know, the incentives in the profession, the, the profession rewards theoretical, uh, dazzling theoretical brilliance and clever and, and creative empirical work, um, among, among other things. But those are two things that get right. a lot of rewards. And so we impressive historical detail and historical that helps too. There, there are a few other things, but the um, the average graduate program ours less so. We have this sort of Austrian flavor here uh, that I think gives people a skepticism about some of the empirical issues. But just on the empirical side, the average graduate student is very tooled up in these sophisticated econometric techniques and profits from indulging and using them. Is that a good thing? Bad thing? Doesn't matter. Do you think my? Let me say it differently. Do you think my skepticism is correct? How well, would I? I mean, know? in a sense, a graduate student has to go native, right? They they come as an outsider. They have to assimilate the culture. They have to see things from the point of view of the academic. They have to what we say, walk the walk, talk the talks, to maybe get a job or something like that to convince people they have a PhD. All the jargon, etc. Um, but in the end. A mature academic will realize academia might be the best place for me, but it's not heaven. It's not this ideal system that you know generates truths by the billions in, in journals that come out every day. Um, that academia can just wander off in random directions. Just because there's been a bunch of papers on something doesn't mean this is an interesting topic. Just because there's a way to do it, put, make a theoretical model of it doesn't make it true just because you know you have a data set doesn't mean it says anything interesting right i mean you just have to have an ordinary human skepticism about the value of this entire profession you're in you know which is hard to do as a new 
newbie who's trying to convince everybody you've, you've bought into it. He's referred to as an old bee. Well, yeah. But I mean, this is you know one of the... We, we become a little more curmudgeon with age, and one of the ways is we realize that our world has limits. You know, out, the people around us do make a contribution, but it's limited in the sense of it's not the ideal contribution we might tell other people. We might wish it were, or we might have thought it could be when we were kids. Anything else you want to add? Any other thoughts? I'll probably think about it when I walk out the door, but not at the moment. You'll blog on it. I think it's, um, you know, I oscillate between uh, thinking this is a central thing we ought to be thinking about and talking about as economists versus maybe just it's my own peculiar little uh, uh, insecurities and uneasiness about the convergently side well, of me. I think the main thing to notice here is how easy it is if we make this the topic of conversation to grant the points that we've been making about ordinary human frailty and uncertainty and all the biases we're substitute. When we make that the conversation, we can sort of say, yeah, for the most part, yeah. But when we get onto something concrete and specific, like local production or the financial collapse or low jack or something yeah, like this, this whole conversation just fades off into the distance. And there we have, right in front of our eyes, this compelling argument that seems so clear to us. And all that abstract theorizing seems so irrelevant to our clear, persuasive data argument, whatever else it is. And it's really hard to remember that but that was all about this kind of situation. It's not vivid in our minds at that moment, but it's relevant. So are you suggesting that a, a person should keep them in their mind all the time? Um, one way is to sort of have this... Um, split personality there's the there's the mode i get into when i'm just thinking something through as as an as a one-sided you know person with a point of view who who you know wants to have a name for himself and is fully human in that way and then there's this sort of corrected person who stands back and say yeah yeah you came up with a result it's nice and now you have to downgrade your certainty there you have to sort of stand back and say you know how right could you be um couldn't you have made a mistake it looks so compelling but um you know the same sort of judgment you might give at, from a distance from somebody else. Are you suggesting that's the right way to be? Yeah, you have a normative well, the, the way I the way I know how the way, best way I know to be, but I'm open to there being another way. My guest today has sort of been Robin Hansen, uh, but uh, behind the couch. Yeah, I, I appreciate it very much, Robin. Thanks for being part of Econ Talk. It was great to be here. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>